Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. What good could Bitcoin do for the economy of Texas, and what makes this state such a good place for its early adopters to do business? Bitcoin has been defined as a virtual currency, with each unit coming into existence as new mathematical problems are solved by powerful computers and a fixed number of total units, 21 million in all, to be released by around 2040. Its value has fluctuated significantly in the six years since a white paper by a mysterious author introduced the concept, but Texas businesses have been unusually eager to adopt it as a form of payment and to develop technologies to make it widely available as an alternative to dollars. Joining us to talk about why the Lone Star State is so Bitcoin-friendly is journalist Lauren Steffi, who wrote a column on the subject for the August issue of Texas Monthly Magazine. Lauren, welcome to Think. Thank you. Will you start by explaining what Bitcoin actually is? Well, the easiest way to describe Bitcoin is is this idea of a virtual currency. It's basically a system of currency or a system of money that's designed to work in the online world. Um, and it is the, the inner workings of it are very arcane, but in terms of how you use it and spend it, it works very similar to actual money, only it's all done through electronic transactions. And its origins are rather opaque. How did the idea for this come to light? Well, the, the origins actually start with a white paper that was written by uh, a, a, an individual or perhaps a group of people that, that used the name Satoshi Nakamoto, which is actually a very common name in in Japan, and uh, there's been a lot of debate since then. Uh, Nakamoto put this idea out there in a white paper. Uh, He set up this algorithm to begin generating bitcoins, and then a few years ago, he basically stopped writing altogether, and that's led to a lot of speculation that perhaps uh, it's actually a group of individuals that developed the system uh, but nobody really knows, and there's been a lot of speculation as to who he is, and even among uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts, they continue to speculate as to whether he's still out there, um, you know, what his motives were in doing this. Uh, you know, there's a, still a lot of question marks about it. How do units of Bitcoin come into existence? Or I guess the expression is, how are they mined? Yeah, it's it's really through this process of mining, which is uh, in, which involves a lot of computing power to solve these mathematical equations. And when you solve them, if you solve them first, you then get twenty five bitcoins, which you can then put into circulation. Uh, so it's very much this this kind of a system of rewards. And the more bitcoins that are out there, of course, the more this process grows. And and the algorithm is designed to release a certain number over a a period of time until it hits this finite number in 100 plus years. And then and then it will stop. Does anybody know what the value of having those equations solved is to Nakamoto or whoever is um, is gaining this information? Well, that's the really big question. Um, Supposedly he did this or or they did this. in order to to facilitate this new system of money that would be ideally suited for you know the internet world uh, but nobody really knows for sure. Is there is there a backdoor in this? Is there some hidden way that he or they are, are, are making uh, additional money? Now, one of the things about Bitcoins is the transactions are all very transparent. Uh, the, the benefit is while the, the actual buyer and seller remain anonymous, the transactions themselves are out there for everybody to see so that you can verify that these are, in fact, the actual Bitcoins, um, you know, because there are only a finite number of them. And um, that all plays into this thing called the blockchain. 
Right. The blockchain is basically an electronic letter ledger that follows the transactions through the process. And and so that way you can if you receive a certain number of bitcoins, you can see every other transaction that they've been involved in. And it's a way for to, to publicly basically publicly verify uh, the, that these are, in fact, real. Um, so bitcoins can be traded for existing hard currencies like dollars. How does that process work? Well, there there are basically different uh, uh, groups or, or businesses that that set up websites where you can exchange bitcoins for for hard currency, um, and you've seen some retailers have started to accept bitcoins. Uh, presumably, they convert them into cash uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we've seen uh, a number of other uses for bitcoins, and and of course, the uses continue to grow. I'm sure we'll we'll get into some of those details in a minute, but. Um, you know, it it is basically a, a pretty straightforward process. It's similar to, to using an ATM or something, um, and the fees are a lot lower, actually, than, for example, foreign transaction fees or things like that. Okay, so why does anybody need a virtual currency? And maybe you'll get into some of the uses for Bitcoins as we talk about this. Well, one of the, one of the reasons for it is that you can transfer money much faster because you've basically eliminated the middleman. So if I wanted to send money to, uh, say, the Philippines, for example, um, you know, it might take a day or two to do a wire transfer because I would have to go to a bank. I would have to ask them to send the money. They would have to then contact the bank in the Philippines. The bank in the Philippines would have to verify that the funds exist and that the bank is legitimate. And then they would actually have to do the process. And then they would have to let the, the recipient on the other end know that the money had arrived. And that, that usually takes several days. In Bitcoins, you can, with Bitcoins, you can do that in a matter of minutes. Um, so what's made Texas such a wide open business climate for Bitcoin enthusiasts? <laughs> well, part of it is that Texas likes to be kind of a wide open environment for a lot of things. Um, you know, it, it kind of speaks to our nature, to our history. Uh, we're, we're a frontier state and, and we like being on the cutting edge of things. Um, you know, there's a, a strong libertarian undercurrent in Texas, and that definitely feeds into the Bitcoin mindset, the idea that you're stepping outside of the established monetary systems, outside of the government-controlled monetary systems. Uh, Steve Stockman, who's a, a, a representative from the Houston area, actually said he, he accepted Bitcoins as political donations. And uh, he said that, uh, you know, it's all about freedom. Uh, so there there is very much that notion that, that plays to... Uh, you know, sort of the Texas, uh, Texana, if you will, uh, the, the Texas mindset. But at the same time, Texas also is very much at the forefront of the tech world in a lot of ways. And uh, we, we've become a very attractive state for a number of tech startups. And Bitcoin is is one of the hottest things going in the tech world right now. And I gather Greg Abbott, who, of course, is running for governor, is accepting donations in Bitcoin as well, which is sends a rather a powerful message for someone um, who wants to be governor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that, that politicians in Texas have been much more receptive to the idea of, of bitcoins, um, both as a currency and as a form of political contributions. Uh, it raises some specific I issues, I guess you'd say, in the political world, because while you can see how much the candidates are getting uh, right down to the penny, you cannot see who's giving it to them, and so that raises interesting uh, disclosure rules when it comes to uh, when it comes to elections. Are bitcoins, Lauren, traded only in whole units, or can they be divided up for smaller purchases? 
Oh, no, you can trade them in fractional units because at the moment a, a Bitcoin is, uh, I didn't check it today, but I believe it's, you know, five to $600 per Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, if you want to use it, for example, there's an ATM in Austin in a bar and you can actually withdraw Bitcoins and use it to, to buy your friend a drink. And so obviously you're not going to use an entire Bitcoin for that. I mean, they have some good beer, but it's not that good. <laughs> um, of course, Bitcoin, I mean, the value has fluctuated wildly over the past few years. And that's one of the big issues. Um, and, and anybody that deals in bitcoins needs to be prepared for that. I mean, this is an extremely volatile form of money. Uh, and it's something you're not used to if you deal with other currencies, uh, you know, sort of established currencies. If you're exchanging, you know, dollars for, uh, you know, British pounds or something, you don't have to deal with this. But with bitcoins, the, the value of the coins themselves can can change dramatically in a period of days. And that that actually has become an issue uh, the State Securities Board, for example, um, actually took some, some uh, they filed a cease and desist order against a, a company in uh, Southlake uh, that accepted Bitcoins from investors. And the reason was because if the company is taking Bitcoins into its corporate treasury and it's basing its market value um, on the value of Bitcoins, that can change from day to day. And that risk was not disclosed to investors. So you may have a company that one day says they have a million dollars on their books, and tomorrow it could be worth half that. Are Bitcoins taxable? Well, that's a, that's a very interesting issue, and it has not been resolved at this point. Um, there's been a lot of talk. Um, again, Steve Stockman has, has put forth a law that would encourage the IRS to treat Bitcoins like any other currency. Um, but it, it, these are these are rules that are still being worked out. Uh, of course, in Texas, we don't have to worry about state income tax, but other states that do have income tax are also wrestling with the idea of how to treat this. Is it an asset? Is it currency? Um, these issues have not been resolved. All right, let's talk a little bit about regulation. You report in the piece that the Texas Department of Banking was the first in the country last spring to create guidelines for virtual currencies. What do those guidelines consist of, and are they legally binding in any way? Well, they are just that. They're guidelines. Um, it's basically uh, advising banks and and uh, businesses and whatnot as to how to deal with Bitcoins. And in a lot of cases, it's basically saying, you know, look, this is a new form of currency. We believe that, and, and, and I should point out, it doesn't specifically say Bitcoins. There are other forms of virtual currency that are similar, and, and the banking rules are, are designed to address all of these. It's basically saying, look, we believe that, that this type of currency is here to stay, that it is going to become more prevalent in its use, and you need to be aware of the drawbacks if you're going to do this. Um, and, and so I think one of the things that, that has made Texas a unique environment for Bitcoins is that the regulators have not been real quick to jump in and just say, this is bad, this is dangerous, people are going to lose their shirts. There is that concern, but I think that our regulators have been a little more careful in how they approach this and say, yes, there are concerns, but there are also benefits. Now that we are no longer backed by the gold standard for the dollar, I mean, are, are bitcoins any more based on faith than, than the currency that, that most of us are accustomed to trading in? <laughs> I think it, even more so. Bitcoins are, are the ultimate fiat currency, as mm -hmm. I pointed out in my Texas Monthly piece. Um, you know, you have to have faith in this entire Internet world and, and thousands of people around the world who are, who are storing these blockchains, who are verifying the, the authenticity of the Bitcoins. Um, you know, on the one hand, they don't have any reason to, to fudge this. It's very hard to, uh, to actually use Bitcoins that are not, uh, that, that are not yours. 
Um, but on the other hand, you're, you're trusting an awful lot of people that you have no idea who they are. Yeah, and um, Bitcoins have been stolen. That is actually the um, one of the biggest drawbacks to Bitcoins. While they, they offer a lot of protection for the people involved in the transactions, they do not offer protection against theft. And so, you know, we're used to things like FDIC insurance for our bank accounts. Uh, that, that doesn't happen with a Bitcoin. Um, if you send it to the wrong person, you are not going to get it back. One of the guys I interviewed for my story was uh, talking about sending a large amount of money to pay for a conference. I believe it was several hundred thousand dollars. And he said, you know, you really check the numbers carefully before you hit the send button because you know you're sending a lot of money. And if you send it to the wrong place, it's just gone. Hmm. Um, the other thing is that Bitcoins are basically stored on people's hard drives. And so one of the things you have to, again, wonder about with a company, if you're dealing with them, for example, is how secure is their system? Um, you know, if their hard drive gets stolen, uh, somebody could theoretically get in there and take the Bitcoins. There was actually an incident where a guy mistakenly threw out his hard drive and it had several million dollars worth of Bitcoins on it. And it's just gone. Wow. Um, and those can't be they can't be reproduced in any way, identified. Um, and, no, because each each Bitcoin is unique. And so um, it would theoretically still exist. It's just nobody would know where it is or, or another person would have it and would be spending it. And so since you can't see who the who the buyers and sellers are, all you would see is that that Bitcoin is still actively being used. But you wouldn't know by whom. We're speaking this hour with Lauren Steffi. He is writer-at-large for Texas Monthly Magazine and also a contributor to Forbes. He wrote a business column for the August issue of Texas Monthly on the Bitcoin climate in Texas. If you'd like to join our conversation, we've got lines open now at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash CAPE. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. My guest this hour is Lauren Steffi, writer at large for Texas Monthly Magazine and a contributor to Forbes. He wrote a business column for the August issue of Texas Monthly on the Bitcoin climate in Texas. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Lauren, what is the purpose for limiting the total number of Bitcoins that will ultimately be issued? Well, the, the purpose is that you have to have a limited number of, of, of the coins, of the currency in circulation, in order for it to have value. And, and so uh, what he was trying to do, or they were trying to do by, by limiting this, you don't want to flood the market with Bitcoins, otherwise they're going to be worthless and nobody's going to use them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so it would seem that investors could, you know, collect them, kind of save them and hoard them until the moment at which there are fewer, uh, you know, there, the, the final amount has been reached. But there's no guarantee that at that point these will even still be in existence. Well, that's true. I mean, uh, you you can invest in Bitcoins, and people have definitely done that, but you do so at your own peril because it, it is an extremely volatile uh, place to put your money. Uh, one of the examples that I gave in, in my Texas Monthly story was was uh, Paul Snow, who is one of the one of the leaders in the Bitcoin movement in the Austin area. He uh, bought some Bitcoins for about seventy seven cents, and and you know, kind of thought they were a novelty before he really got into this. And a couple of years later, he went to look at them and they were worth over $1,000 a piece. So he went from 77 cents to $1,000. And he, he told his wife, I think I accidentally funded our retirement. Um, of course, then then within a few months, they had dropped down to, you know, or, or within a year, they had dropped down to about $400 and they were back to 600 So th- the price of these things really bounces all around. And it's very, very hard Unlike uh, even a stock or or some other investment, it's very hard to know what's going to drive the value of Bitcoins at any given moment. There are some who have argued this might just be a very well-concealed kind of Ponzi scheme. That that is definitely true. Uh, I point out in the story that I that that it bears a lot of similarities with classic scams. Uh, you don't really know who invented it. Uh, there's sort of this breathless admiration for it that you know you got to get on board. This is the new thing, um, and there's a lot of uh, complexity to it that isn't being very well explained. Um, but the the one thing that that I found interesting as I talked to different people involved in Bitcoin was that the guys who are actually developing the new technology around this are basically insistent that that doesn't really matter. And in fact, one of the things they talk about is the fact that the the currency itself is kind of, that's the, the sort of the public face of this. That's the thing that gets everybody's attention. But the real benefit here is this idea of being able to securely send information around the world instantaneously and have it be completely protected. And so what you see in, in the Austin area in particular, but really throughout Texas, there's an awful lot of tech startups that are working with the protocols that, that empower Bitcoin, and they're applying them to other things. Uh, for example, sending legal documents, sending insurance papers, uh, anything that you need to have uh, be secure, you can use these same protocols to to basically encrypt. And what it does is it, it takes this information and it slices it and dices it into tiny little pieces, and it spreads it out to you know thousands of hard drives around the world. And unless you have the key that can put it all back together, it, it's basically worthless. You can't look at a piece of it and tell what it is. But if you have that key, you can actually then pull all those parts back together. So it, it is it is both extremely secure and uh, and and very safe from a privacy standpoint. And and that's really where its appeal is. And that's unlike traditional digital currency uh, transfers. It's funny to refer to digital currency transfers as traditional, <laughs> but um, we all know what we're talking about here. It's unlike those because they um, sort of exist in probably one centralized set of servers. Is that is that the difference? Yeah, that's that's a big part of it. I mean, most of your online currency um, options today really still revolve around regular currency, sort of conventional currency. Uh, for example, PayPal is a way that you can, you know, more securely transact business, but you're still using dollars, okay? And, and so what Bitcoin does is it kind of takes that last step. It removes the entire concept of 
a particular country's currency, of banks, of middlemen, uh, central banks, you know, anybody that, that controls the flow. And it puts it entirely out there on the Internet. So it really is the first currency that was truly designed for the Internet as a, as a vehicle of commerce. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now and speak with Lawrence in Carrollton. Hi, Lawrence. Hi. Hi, Chris and Lauren. Uh, I would just like to say I would I would trust Bitcoin perhaps a little bit more if the Internet were, uh, you know, made more secure against, like, solar flares, like really strong solar flares or something. You know, you never know what might happen. But um, other than that, I just wanted to make a kind of... Uh, suggestion maybe or an observation uh, I had heard about some kind of stock exchange uh, which was sort of a niche separate stock exchange that had been uh, limited by algorithm and such uh, I think it was on I don't know like 60 minutes or something and I wondered if maybe um, Bitcoin since uh, when you put money into Bitcoin you know that it it's probably not being skimmed off the top to fund, you know, foreign wars or occupations and such, if they might uh, ally themselves with such a niche um, stock market, uh, as I've heard about. I don't know if you've heard about that, but anyway. Thanks for your call. Yeah, I'm not I'm not familiar with the exact exchange that you're talking about. I mean, there's certainly lots of electronic uh, stock exchanges these days in various forms. Uh, you, you know, the interesting thing about your comment is there is no they. I mean, there there is no one person or group of people that actually controls the Bitcoins, even though uh, this original algorithm was set up by a person or an individual or a group of individuals. Uh, there's nobody controlling it today. So it is truly, you know, wh whatever the market would go. And if somebody wanted to use uh, Bitcoins to participate in a market like that, they certainly could. Uh, there have been other instances where Bitcoins have been used um, for a lot of these uh, dark web kind of businesses that they talk about. There was a, a an outfit in California called Silk Road, which uh, was used a lot for, for trafficking in, in arms and illegal drugs and things like that. And Bitcoins were a very popular way of doing it because the buyers and sellers are anonymous. And, and that is actually one of the big concerns about Bitcoin that, that – not so much the the financial regulators have, but the 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 criminal you know the the FBI and guys like that are more worried about who's using this. You know, is it providing a way for drug dealers and and arms dealers to to peddle their wares uh, more easily? And that that of course is a big concern. Are insurance companies set up to cover Bitcoin losses? That's a very good question. I am not aware of a an insurance company paying out on a Bitcoin claim. Uh, I don't think that has come up yet, um, but certainly as more and more people begin using this, you're going to see people try to insure their Bitcoin holdings. And I imagine insurance companies are going to be very uncomfortable about that because it's very hard to assess the value. Hmm. Have you tried this? Have you tried to mine a Bitcoin? I played around with it a little bit when I, uh, you know, you can get an, an app for your iPhone, and, and I played around with it a little bit when I was working on the story, but I'm not a, I'm not a big-time Bitcoin user at this point. It, uh, it's uh, not something I'm going to be, uh, be using on a daily basis. And there's a, there's a bit of a race to get these equations solved. It's not like if you get this app for your computer that you'll just have free Bitcoins flowing into your machine. No, that's that's a very good point. I mean, uh, you know, the the average person with a PC cannot cannot really mine these things. It takes a lot of computing power, and uh, and that's by design. I mean, these are these are designed to be very complex equations, uh, and and so you need a lot of computer power working on these things. And in fact, 
there are some organizations that actually have machines that are dedicated to doing nothing but working on mining bitcoins. They actually call them toasters, and they're just running all the time trying to solve these equations first. And if they if they don't make the you know this one round, then they go on to the next, and they just keep working it constantly. But it's uh, it's not the kind of thing that that you or I would want to have running in the background of our PC while we're trying to get work done. <laughs> um, is there a, a, so there's no governing body really regulating the transfer of this stuff. There's no one who can see it. I mean, how, do the, how does Bitcoin work from country to country? I suppose there's no impediment, right? There's no impediment at all, and that's actually what most of the supporters see as the benefit. You don't have to worry about what com- country you're transaction, transacting with. If you want to, if you want to uh, send money to a, a country that uh, you know you might you might think twice about their banking system. Uh, you know, this is not a problem with Bitcoin because it's it's completely secure. So you you don't have to you don't have to worry about uh, you know are the banks corrupt? Is the government corrupt? Uh, is somebody going to hack into the system and and you know steal the the account numbers, uh, that kind of thing. It doesn't matter. So if folks like you and I with you know, mid-level PCs have to buy our Bitcoins if we want them, we have to buy them with dollars, right? What, what is the impact on the U.S. economy, the value of whatever currency you are, use, you are trading to purchase Bitcoins, um, presuming that, that that money sort of leaves, um, the value of that money leaves the, the U.S. currency? Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I think I see where you're going with that. I mean, I, I guess, you know, the, the counter argument would be, well, but if you're transferring it into Bitcoins, then, then the value is still there. And if you can use Bitcoins to purchase goods, then you're still, you know, contributing to the economy. So I, I, I don't know if there is an economic impact at this point. Um, you know, some of the people I interviewed in Austin would argue that, in fact, there's a benefit to the economy because there's all these people who have full-time jobs working on ways to adapt this technology to other things and to to actually expand its usage, and that that over time this will become a much more common thing. Um, in fact, one of the one of the folks I talked to and working on my story, who's involved in the the venture capital side of this, said that uh, in a few years millions of people will be using Bitcoin and not even know it because again the the, the underlying protocols will be kind of where the action is, if you will. And and he said it's kind of like Right, right now, a lot of people use the internet, but they don't, they don't understand HTML. Mm. Um, and he said it's a very similar comparison, and so uh, this could actually, you know, it could be a big boost for the economy in the long run. Chad in Arlington was hoping that you would discuss the technology behind Bitcoin and its other applications. You alluded to um, other kinds of confidential information that people might want to transfer. What else could we use that technology for? Well, basically, any any kind of transaction that you want to have be secure um, and where you would prefer to not have your name associated with it, uh, Bitcoin has an application there. The, the blockchain, this idea of a public ledger where you can verify what is being sent but not who is sending it, for example, uh, really has a lot of applications. And um, one of the things, uh, that one of the companies, for example, um, is working on a technology that could potentially make server farms obsolete at some point in the future because instead of having designated sites to store data, you would simply ask people around the world that are on the Bitcoin network to give up part of their hard drives and things would be stored. Little pieces of data from you know thousands of different users would be sort of tucked away on hard drives all over the world. And so it becomes kind of virtual storage instead of, of having to pay to have these big sites, which are, of course, expensive and use lots of electricity and have to be maintained. Uh, you wouldn't need them anymore. 
Any reason to worry that riding along with those little bits of data could be some kind of Trojan virus or something that could harm all these big, powerful computers that have signed on to be part of this Bitcoin operation? Well, I think you always have to worry about uh, viruses, whether it's you know associated with Bitcoin or not. Um, the, 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 the Bitcoin loyalists would tell you that, that even if pieces of that data you know, were captured by others, it wouldn't do them any good without all of the data, without the key to assemble it all in the right order. Um, however, I do think that, that there are, you know, there is sort of the mysterious origins of Bitcoin, and there's a lot of, of uh, sort of, you know, less than transparent aspects to it that, uh, that should give people some, some concern. Um, you know, this is obviously an evolving technology. It's something that we as a society are going to have to get more comfortable with. But I think we have to be careful about, you know, plunging into it and just saying, hey, it's the new thing, therefore it's great. Um, you know, a, a good part of my article talked about, uh, you know, the caution, the need for caution as you move forward with this. Let's go back to the phones now, 1-800-933-5372. We have Ed on the line in Arlington. Hello, Ed. Hi. So what's to stop uh, me, Ed, in Arlington from sending out millions of spam emails offering people bitcoins in exchange for their uh, their credit card dollars and then when they give me their credit card dollars i turn back around and send them another uh, junk email saying presto here are your bitcoins when it turns <laughs> out they're just crap well ed i hope that you're speaking theoretically <laughs> here but uh, what do you have to say about that lauren well, I mean, Ed, there's nothing to stop you from doing that, but it wouldn't have to be bitcoins. I mean, you could you could call it anything you wanted. I mean, that's that's a classic email phishing scheme, which of course, you know, if you've ever gotten an, an email from you know a Nigerian doctor or something, uh, you you already know how that works. I mean, it would just be using the the popularity of Bitcoin to try to to you know uh, put another scam forth on on people. So. Uh, you know, you wouldn't actually be able to deliver real bitcoins uh, in that scenario. So that that would be the that would be the difference. If you had real bitcoins, the value would be such that you would you would want to be more careful about what you do with them than that. I guess you do have to. There is something of a learning curve for average members of the population who are not incredibly tech savvy um, in understanding what it means to verify a bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, there are there are uh, designated Bitcoin uh, exchanges, for example, where you can go and exchange your your cash for bitcoins, and you know, then you get a then you can actually see the blockchain, so you become part of this network and you can verify the the transactions. And, and so, th there is you know sort of a real thing that you that you can see. It's on your computer. I mean, I guess it's not real in the sense that it's virtual, but. Um, you, know, you know, there is there is sort of a, a, a way to verify that you have, in fact, gotten something for what you paid for. Um, and it is it is, the you know, the very concept of it is something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I have to admit, when I first started working on the story, I was very, very skeptical of this um, because I saw that there were a lot of potentials for abuse. And, and we've seen in the past few years, you've had, uh, for example, uh, Mt. Gox, which was one of the biggest Bitcoin exchanges uh, basically imploded. Uh, it was based in Japan, but but a lot of the litigation has been here in the U.S. And, um, you know, those kinds of things ought to worry people. I mean, you know, suddenly, you know, hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins just went missing. Um, those are the kind of problems that you still have with this system, and it is the thing that has kept it from becoming truly mainstream. Uh, we have an email from Claudia in Arlington who wants to know what kinds of retailers lean toward Bitcoin. What's the allure as far as branding goes for a shopper service that looks to accept the currency? 
you know, it's a pretty broad range. Uh, you just hear different retailers decide to accept them. Um, usually, uh, you know, e-commerce sites have been have been among the early adopters. Uh, but like I said, I mean, you you have bitcoins cropping up in in all kinds of different transactions these days. Uh, somebody just put a, a, a an estate in California on the market and said they'd accept bitcoins for it. So. Um, you know, it, it, there really is kind of a broad range, everything from sort of run-of-the-mill retailers to uh, real estate agents. My guest is Lauren Steffi, writer at large for Texas Monthly Magazine and a contributor to Forbes. You wrote a business column for the August issue of Texas Monthly on the Bitcoin climate in Texas. If you'd like to join the conversation, we have lines open at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or send me a tweet at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for Think is made possible by SMU Continuing and Professional Education with courses in art, literature, history, communication, photography, and Portuguese. Fall registration is now open. Registration and information at smu.edu slash C-A-P-E. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour about Texas Monthly's August business column written by my guest, Lauren Steffi. He's a writer at large for Texas Monthly. He also contributes to Forbes. We're talking about Bitcoin and the climate for it in Texas. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 1-800-933-5372 or email think at KERA.org. Lauren, this is the kind of thing that economists love to argue over. What do the different sides say? How are they weighing in on this question? Interesting things about Bitcoin uh, is that there hasn't been a lot of academic study uh, around the phenomenon. And and that was something that the uh, the regulators pointed out to me when I was interviewing them about it. They said, you know, normally when it comes to some new thing in the economy, um, you know, if it's something that, that regulators in particular are struggling with, they look to the academics to see what sort of analysis has been done. And there really hasn't been a lot. Um, and so that's uh, it, it's hard to know where economists come down on this. There's been some, you know, some various blog posts and things. But at the moment, there isn't really a, a sort of a cohesive scientific uh, uh, consensus on either side. 1-800-933-5372 is our number. We have Albert on the line now in Dallas. Hey, Albert. Hey, how's it going? Great, thank you. Uh, with regards to security, everyone says that it, you know it, it, bitcoins will never become an eventuality because they're impossible to secure. Um, I think that maybe with uh, quantum computing coming maybe in the next five years, um, what impact do you think that will have if that is an eventuality, if we, if we can figure out quantum computing? Well, I think that, that when it comes to the security issue, I mean, what you're, the real vulnerability of Bitcoins is, is the, the ability to steal them. And if somebody can get access to your vault, which is what they call your, your, uh, your electronic wallet, they can basically just, uh, just, you know, take off with your money. And there's really no way to trace it. And that, 
that's really the problem. So it, it really comes down to a security issue. Um, you know, right now, a lot of people who keep Bitcoins uh, on a hard drive oftentimes will disconnect that hard drive from the computer in order to, to prevent anybody from hacking into it and trying to steal their, their Bitcoins. Of course, then, as I mentioned earlier in the program, uh, you know, the, there was one guy who threw his hard drive away accidentally thinking he was done with it and forgot he had put all his Bitcoins on there. So, I mean, that's a, that's an issue, too. Um, but uh, But I think that the security issue will continue to improve as the overall uh, uh, technology, uh, uh, you know, securing computers actually improves. It's it's not so different. I mean, obviously, the, the means by which bitcoins would be stolen is quite different, but um, it's the same with cash, right? If I've, um, you know, dropped some cash walking down the street and somebody picks it up, there's there's effectively no way for me to find that money again. Well, that's true. Uh, it is very similar to cash in that sense. The difference is if you put the cash in your bank, and somebody robs the bank, you don't have to worry about uh, what happens to your money. Because it's good for identical cash of the same value as opposed to Bitcoin, which is that one Bitcoin with a particular signature. Exactly. Exactly. Let's go back to the phones now. This time we have Don on the line in Grand Prairie. Hello, Don. Hello. How are you, Chris? Great. Thank you. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I just had a quick question, Lauren, in regards to you mentioned that in the future they may be looking to put Bits of this information, no pun intended, bits of this information onto multiple hard drives of folks just a little bit here and there. What happens if a person says, okay, this computer is outdated, I don't need it anymore? Granted, it's a little piece of information that's there as a threat, but is there thoughts on how they want to protect that in the future? Well, if you're part of this Bitcoin network and you're participating in it, you, you actually are as concerned about maintaining the integrity of the system as you are, you know, you have your own data out there as well. And so the people who volunteer to to have their computers used for this sort of thing actually uh, believe that they have a lot of responsibility to the network. And so if you were going to replace your computer, you would you would somehow, you know, notify uh, the network or whatever. You would, you would make people aware of the fact that this was going to be switching over. And, of course, in a lot of cases what people are doing is actually – they have, you know, separate hard drives that are that are kind of sitting there uh, with unused space, and they say, "Oh, well, you can use this." And it, it's so it's a it's a solitary piece of hardware as opposed to being part of a PC. But if that hardware ceases to exist for some other reason, there's a fire, there's you know whatever, um, it is out of commission, right? That information is gone. It, it well, it that that piece of that information is gone. But I, I guess I didn't explain this properly. That is not the only piece of that information. It is when it, when I talked about it being sliced up and and distributed. It's also copied. So there are other that fragment is is stored on multiple different okay. uh, places. So so it's not like if you lose one, then it's just gone forever. So it's broken up. For example, uh, I'm making these numbers up, but it's it's broken up into a thousand pieces of information that live on six thousand different computers. That sort of thing. That's a that's a very good way of putting it. Okay. Yeah. Back to the phones now. Uh, this time we'll speak with George in Dallas. Hey, George. Hi. How are you doing? Thanks for taking my question. Sure. Um, I'm a neophyte to this operation. Um, I have a two-part question. Can you explain the difference between an exchange and a wallet? And then on top of that, I've read about many different exchanges, and by the time I finish reading the blog, I want to be as far away from them as possible. <laughs> How do I pick out an exchange that's reputable that I could begin these transactions? Okay, well, the, the first thing is an exchange is basically uh, it's it's a website that you go to 
to uh, set up your account to where you can exchange uh, hard currency for Bitcoin. Uh, once you have Bitcoins, you can actually, you know, use you can transact through that exchange if you want. But but most people use it as a way to, to basically think of it sort of like an ATM. Uh, you know, you put money into your account and you take out Bitcoins. Uh, your wallet is where you keep the Bitcoins once you get them and you keep them, you know, on your phone or on your computer or where, wherever you want to keep it. So um, that that's really the distinction there. Uh, the issue of exchange credibility is a is a significant one, and it is one that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I mentioned Mt. Gox; you know, they were the biggest exchange, and uh, and you know they they basically went under. Um, so so you do have to be very very careful. It it is it is hard to tell since you're dealing with you know a website and and you know all this is done in the virtual world. It is very hard to to know you know how much you can trust these folks. Although if you have actual physical ownership of your Bitcoin, it that becomes less of an issue. Uh, part of the problem with Mt. Gox was they were storing Bitcoins for, for themselves uh, that they had not yet sold, and those are the ones that, that wound up disappearing, um, and, and that was what, what caused the problem. Is Mt. Gox the firm that started out as like a distributor of Magic the Gathering cards? Yes, uh, and then they, they morphed through several different things, and uh, yeah, it... it it kind of grew into this uh, the Bitcoin realm. It does sound like sort of a strange way to work into uh, this kind of field. Well, one of the other things you have to get used to when you're dealing with all the different companies involved in this is that they all have very unusual names, and, and many of them don't sound like <laughs> like real businesses, quite frankly. Um, but, but, you know, you encounter that a lot in the dot-com world, too. So. Yeah. All right, let's go back to the phones. We have uh, Edward on the line in Keller. Hi, Edward. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask uh, if, if you could explain how the blockchain works. The, the blockchain is basically like an electronic ledger. So every time there's a transaction involving a particular Bitcoin, the, the blockchain basically keeps track of it. And, and the, then it builds over time. So you can follow that particular Bitcoin through every transaction that it, that it goes through. Somebody could trace those with IP addresses, though, no? Are they not assigned in that way? And, and um, are the, by what means are the transactions recorded from one uh, address to another? You can, you can use the IP addresses to get some idea. You know, I, I remember this coming up when I was talking with some folks about the Mt. Gox uh, situation. And, and I said, you know, it was determined that they had lost a certain number of bitcoins. And I said, well, how are you able to figure that out if you don't know who the owners are? And the answer was it was basically a guess. Um, but that using IP addresses they could and, and tracking some of the patterns on the blockchains, they could figure out that, that certain of these Bitcoins had, had gone through Mt. Gox. Um, I'm not entirely sure as to how they, they did that, quite honestly, but, um, but there is some level of visibility there, although it does not relate specifically to individuals. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the other things that you have to worry about with these exchanges that's worth mentioning is if any exchange actually gets to the point that they control more than 50% of the blockchains, uh, it could actually, they would actually have the ability to influence the market. And we had a situation where uh, one of the exchanges in Europe got very close. They got to like 47% or something. And they actually put out an announcement saying, we are, we are selling some of our Bitcoins. We're, we're kind of backing off of this because we don't want to find out what happens if we hit that 50% threshold. So there is the other element of all of this is you have to sort of trust. 
I hate to say trust the internet, but I don't know how else to put it. You have to trust this network of anonymous people around the world that, that you don't know that, that if they ever get the opportunity to take advantage of the system, they won't do it. Um, and if you work in this world, I think you're much more willing to, to go that route than the rest of us who may be a little more skeptical about it. Which is more likely to happen first, that um, Bitcoin and its users will clear up what remains some um, security hurdles, some technical hurdles, or that the transfer of traditional currencies via digital means will um, sort of eliminate the time gap and make it easy to instantaneously move assets anywhere in the world? Well, I don't think the latter is going to happen willingly because banks make a lot of money uh, by inserting themselves into the middle of that process. Mm. And so there's a lot of fee income that they would be giving up uh, by not being the middleman in, in those sorts of transactions. But I do think what will happen is that, that virtual currency in some form will become more commonplace. Uh, regulators are working daily on this issue. They are getting a better handle on it. And I think that you will see governments actually building more safeguards to protect consumers, uh, you know, who, who decide to, to venture into this world. That is actually something people in the Bitcoin world don't want to hear because, you know, one of the things they pride themselves on is that they operate outside the realm of government. But I think if this is ever going to be widely accepted, people are going to want to, to have some greater sense of security. They want to know that somebody is watching this uh, and policing it. And, and I think that eventually you're going to see both the, the state governments and the federal governments get, in, get involved in this. And you say that that kind of sense that somebody's overseeing all this might actually make Bitcoin less appealing to the people who've been early evangelizers for it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I always I sort of liken this to the Fight Club mentality. You know, there's a there's the, you know the true loyalists want to believe they operate completely outside the system, but if you operate outside the system, then it's never going to become mainstream. So, if this is ever going to really take off and and realize its full potential, they're going to have to recognize that that there has to be more protections and more safeguards for for average users. We have an email here from Mike in Dallas who wants to know who determines the equations and verifies the answer and determines who got it first when mining bitcoins. That's all done sort of very publicly. I mean, the the equations are put out by this algorithm that that uh, you know Nakamoto is is you know supposedly unleashed and it it's sort of out there running on its own. Um, you know, the 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 different miners actually, you know, work furiously on these. And when they get one, when they when they solve it, you know, they verify the answer. Uh, they, they announce it basically across the, the Bitcoin network. And so then everybody knows they have it first. They get the coins. So they they know that they've done it right. Um, and then everybody moves on to the next one. So do you so think it's all done sort of very publicly? It's not uh, there's not like one person sitting there, you know, like, it's not like a, a teacher sitting there saying you got this equation right. <laughs> it, therefore, you get an A plus and a, and a Bitcoin. Right. right. <laughs> is it is it um, thought to be beneficial to the Texas economy to be, you know, to gain first mover advantage in, in becoming a place that is really open to Bitcoin? I think it is. Um, you know, we've seen an awful lot of people relocating from California to Texas and especially to Austin uh, around this this very issue around Bitcoins. I mean, most of the people that I interviewed who were, you know, uh, either funding Bitcoin startups or running Bitcoin startups had lived in California two years ago. And they were all coming here because, uh, you know, it was seen that Texas was was kind of more Bitcoin friendly. Um 
I should say that that just in the time I was working on the article, though, some some of them started pointing out that New Jersey was actually changing some of its laws and might pass Texas up. So everything moves very, very quickly in this world. But uh, I think that that, you know, Texas has a reputation as being, uh, you know, a tech haven in a lot of ways. And and that has uh, drawn a lot of these companies here to to the state. The Federal Reserve, have they weighed in on Bitcoin at all? Any opinions issued? Uh, they have not officially weighed in yet. Um, you know, the central banks, of course, are very skeptical of this, uh, as would be expected, since it, it takes things out of their control. Um, but uh, they have not issued any sort of official uh, statement on how to deal with this. Uh, they've there there been some discussion with Fed presidents and, and different banks about, you know, how to handle this. But it's all still very much in the theoretical stage at this point. Lauren Steffi is writer-at-large for Texas Monthly Magazine and wrote uh, a business column for the August issue on the Bitcoin climate in Texas. He's also a contributor to Forbes. Lauren, thank you so much for spending this time with us. I think you've cleared up a lot of questions. Thank you. Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is assistant producer. Jeff Whittington is executive producer. You can contact the show via email at think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.